Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. This is your host, Dave Stovall, and today's episode is the fourth and final track session by Disciple First at last year's forum. They've been walking us through the process of training up leaders of leaders. They started with the challenge, then the pathway, then the pipeline, and today's episode is the practice. Craig talks about some of the pitfalls of departmental leaders, things to watch out for when raising up or hiring new leaders, like how they handle the budget, you know, getting a gauge on where their spiritual maturity is, things to look out for over their natural giftings or their charisma. And after the break, they dive into looking at the leader in front of you and figuring out what their weaknesses are and how you can help them walk through those in healthy and transparent ways. I hope that you benefit from this episode. I'm sure that you will. Let's jump into Disciple First last track session with Glenn Underhill and Craig Etheridge. Here we go. All right. Well, good afternoon. I hope everybody's well. Everybody good? Yeah, everyone good. So let me uh, let me get us started. It's about that time. We want to make the best use of your your time and our time and. And uh, I always believe in starting in time and ending on time, so we want to make sure we make the most of that. Let me take a moment and just say thank you for being here. I hope this conference has been uh, uplifting to you, inspiring. I, I've told every group we've had through here, man, it, I get so inspired to be around leaders who are saying, what can we do to replicate the model of Jesus, because we all know the only thing that the church has been authorized to do is to make disciples who make disciples. Uh, and, and we believe it's to make disciples Jesus' way of making disciples. And uh, what we're going to be talking about here uh, for the next hour is this idea of disciple-making leaders. Uh, it's, you know, we often, as we travel and work and consult with churches, uh, at Disciple First, we're always asked, how do, you make, how do you make leaders? We need more leaders, right? How many of you could say we need more leaders? We try to flip the equation and say it's not more leaders that you need, it's the right kinds of leaders that you need. Uh, because we believe if you make disciples, you will have enough leaders. And let me say that again. If you make disciples, you will have enough leaders. So we, we believe that if you look at the life of Jesus, uh, especially the last six months, uh, if you know Jesus' life, you know that two and a half years into his public ministry, he actually calls the 12 to be leaders of leaders. And it's in that last six months to nine months of his ministry, public ministry, that Jesus shifts not from disciple making but to leadership development. And so we've been taking a look at that uh, where we are at First Colleyville and saying, how do we, uh, as Jesus did, how do we replicate uh, as we're making disciples, how do we really raise up disciple-making leaders? All right, so this is really just out of the crucible of what we've been learning uh, over the years and how we've been really trying to just bang away at making uh, disciple-making leaders in the church so that we can replicate uh, not only churches and ministries, uh, but raise up staff from within so that we can continue to perpetuate a movement of disciple making. So uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Glenn Underhill. I'm the executive director for uh, Disciple First. Uh, we're a ministry that's really uh, built around the idea of helping to equip churches and ministry leaders to make and multiply disciples like Jesus. 
We're also, both of us, myself and Craig, who's our, he's our president of Disciple First, uh, we're both practitioners. So I'm the executive pastor at uh, First Colleyville. Uh, Craig is our lead pastor. We've been together uh, for 20 some years, together, served together 20 years. Well, our wives like to call us an old married couple. Uh, and uh, in fact, whenever he calls, my, my wife says, hey, your girlfriend's calling. So, uh, so we, we have been together a long time, done a lot of ministry together. But the, the biggest joy in all of that is the fact that we've been doing it and learning how to do with it with, through Jesus' way of making disciples who make disciples. And so it's been a great journey to journey that together. And uh, we have just enjoyed getting to work with churches across the country to just begin to think about, let's, let's get back to doing it Jesus' way. Best thing I ever heard many, many years ago is Jesus started the church the way he wants it. Now he wants it the way he started it. And so we want to go back to not chasing church models, but really looking at Jesus's model, right? So that really is the heartbeat behind what we're doing here. And I hope that you will be inspired at the end of our time today. Uh, if you, uh, we're going to give you an opportunity there. Uh, a lot of what we're talking about today is in a new book that we're getting ready to publish uh, called Made to Multiply. It'll be published at the first of the year. Uh, if you, we, we're going to give you an opportunity. If you want a free chapter, we'll give you a place that you can go on uh, and, and text that, and we'll send you a free downloaded chapter to that to that book. Uh, but just want to make you aware of that. Uh, it's a one of our. I think it's going to be a, a great resource. And just so you know, too, any of the resources that we um, that we have as an organization, Craig and myself do not receive any compensation for that at all. Nothing comes across our plate. The only thing it goes back to is helping funnel movements, uh, not only to help other churches, but also help our church planting network plant churches around you know, locally and around the world. So uh, that's why we do what we do. It's because we just want to be a part of a, a worldwide movement of disciple making. All right. So let me pray and then I'll uh, have Craig come back up and uh, finish us out today. So, Father God, thank you for an opportunity to continue to grow in our understanding of what it means to make and multiply disciples like you, Jesus. And as we kind of really dive into this idea of what does it look like to raise up disciple-making leaders, especially staff, as we'll be talking about today, or high-capacity leaders, uh, continue to give us your perspective, your wisdom, so that we'll do it your way. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, welcome to the fourth final session. You have made it. Thank you so much for being here and staying with us uh, through this. Uh, what we have covered in, up to this point is simply that what our churches need are disciple-making leaders. So session one was that. What, what is a disciple-making leader? How is it different than a superstar leader? and why the gospel demands it, Jesus commands it, and why today the future of the church depends on producing disciple-making leaders. Session number two is we talked a little bit about how this is made, and I introduced this diagram to you. Uh, I talked about the disciple-making pathway here and about the uh, leadership pipeline here. And we introduced this idea of the, the trajectory of a disciple-making leader. And the big idea of this uh, was simply that as Jesus, Jesus didn't elevate someone into leadership until he progressed them down the discipleship pathway. 
Uh, and so as you go down the discipleship pathway and as you're moving up in leadership, you should follow a similar trajectory. This DM, that's a disciple-making leader. We put that at L1, a leadership number one. That's what we're looking for. That's what you want to produce in your church. Unfortunately, there are many people who are like L2s. They, they shoot up the leadership pipeline because they're gifted, talented, have lots of vision, ability. They come from big church. They've got a great resume, right? But they've not progressed down the leadership pipeline or the, the leadership path of the discipleship pathway. And so they don't have the disciple making DNA. Therefore, they do not replicate themselves. They don't multiply themselves. They love Jesus. They're just not a disciple maker. And this is what many of our church and staff are, are filled with. People that love God, went to Bible college, you know, or, but they've never been discipled. And therefore, they don't multiply themselves. And the church doesn't multiply. And I shared it last time. 95% of Baptist churches never plant another church. They don't have a multiplying DNA. And the reason is because... Uh, the leaders there do not have a multiplying DNA. We also talked about an L3, which is someone who is a multiplier, but they never rise to leadership. And there are some people that could, but aren't necessarily being deployed into leadership levels of your church. So that's the big picture. We covered that on the first two sessions yesterday. And so now what we're asking the question is, well, then how did Jesus develop leaders that were disciple-making leaders? And so last time we got together, I talked about the team leads. How did Jesus develop leaders of teams? Okay. Uh, today, what I want to talk about is this group right here. How did Jesus develop uh, departmental leaders? Okay. Departmental people right up here. And so that's what we're talking about in this session uh, today. And so uh, a departmental leader is is super important. This is someone who uh, runs a department in your church. It could most often are paid staff, though some church, uh, some churches have a high capacity volunteers that serve. But this would be somebody who runs your student ministry, someone who runs your kids ministry, someone who runs your adult ministry or your worship ministry, or, or some churches have a guest services ministry or an outreach ministry. But these are usually high level leaders in your church that serve on that staff. I remember several years ago, I was um, I was on the board of a large hospital that's part of one of the largest hospital systems in the state of Texas. And we would go into board meetings and there was a U-shaped uh, uh, formation of tables and it would come in some docs that had their white uh, coats on and then all the senior leader executives of the hospital and then all the departmental leaders of the hospital and they would all sit around this horseshoe and it was a high impact environment, all right? There were charts and graphs on the wall. People had to give an account for how they were hitting their metrics and what they needed to do and how they were gonna reverse some negative trends and all this kind of stuff. But I walked out of there always feeling charged up. I mean, I, you know, my, uh, my job wasn't on the line on performance like those guys were, but as a board member, I was just fired up to watch these high-level leaders doing the best they can and the most that they can to, to be the best hospital in the system and to save lives. And I often thought, man, wouldn't we like to have that kind of, 
uh, focus and determination uh, in the in the calling of the ministry that Jesus has given us, right? Yeah. And so when we talk about departmental leaders, we're talking about people that are leading at a very, very high level. So departmental leaders, they serve this critical role. Uh, uh, the departmental leader's primary purpose is to lead an entire department of the church toward growth and success, uh, giving, uh, giving direction to all leaders of leaders, uh, all team leaders, and volunteers that are under their care. Okay, they have tremendous influence. They influence hundreds of people, uh, depending, of course, on the size of the church. Uh, these are normally highly skilled. Many of these have, have gone to seminary or the Bible college. They, they're trained. They have uh, a lot of um, invested, and they are the top level leaders of the church. So, so how do we develop these people? Like Jesus developed these people. Uh, in talking to a lot of pastors. Uh, many times, a lot of the conflict, you know, on staff happens at this level, uh, unfortunately. And you probably, have, if you've been in church long enough, you've probably seen and experienced conflict at the departmental level and and uh, above. And so, because so much is riding on these folks, uh, there are there are some things that they need to do, and there are some big mistakes that often departmental leaders make. So what I want to give you are what I call the seven deadly sins of a departmental leader. All right? These are not found in the Bible, by the way. We're going to get to that in a, in a little bit. But these are just practical things that I think often are mistakes for a departmental leader. Okay? Uh, number one, if, by the way, if you're coaching up departmental leaders, you want to talk with them about these seven things. Number one is leaning from skill, not spiritual maturity. There, again, are some departmental leaders that climb up the ladder because they come from a big church or they are very skilled or they have a lot of uh, leadership acumen. Uh, but the problem comes that this person has risen into leadership, uh, but they've not really developed spiritually. They've not gone down the spiritual pathway. And consequently, um, they don't have the spiritual maturity <laughs> oftentimes to handle the pressures that a departmental leader will handle. Sometimes these rising stars uh, become falling stars quite quickly because they uh, fall into temptation or they don't have the spiritual maturity to handle uh, a lot of these situations and they just don't have a solid grasp of the spiritual disciplines and practices as a disciple maker. And uh, I, I think that this happens quite often. And so one of the things that you need to be committed to, we're increasingly committed to, is you never want to move somebody up into a leadership role before they've gone down uh, the, the discipleship pathway. You need to always be asking the question, okay, where is this person at on their spiritual Pathway. Uh, have they been discipled? Have they multiplied their life? Have they shown evidence of this kind of fruitfulness before you keep elevating them into leadership? A lot of times what we do, and, and I'll tell you, this is a problem in our church right now. Uh, we want to hire a high-capacity person. Here comes this guy. He's got the right profile. He's got the, he comes from a big church. He's, he clearly knows how to do his job. He's a great preacher, great leader. Everybody loves him. Most likable guy. You'd want your daughter to marry him. I mean, everything is fantastic, but he's not been down here. So what do you do? 
Do you make the hire or do you not? Do you? And, and then you say, well, man, I don't know of hardly any of these guys have been disciples. We know this for a fact that many, many people on church staff and even senior pastors have never been a formally disciple. So that certainly limits your pool right there. So do you hire them on and hope to bend them this direction? Uh, do you hold off and not? I think that those are the real life leadership decisions that you have to make. But I think at least knowing to, to press into that. Tell me about your spiritual growth. Tell me, I mean, were you ever a disciple? What does that look like? Have you multiplied your life? What does that look like? I think these are great questions to ask. Uh, so leading from skill and not from spiritual maturity is a deadly sin. Number two, acting like a leader of leaders. All right, now we haven't covered the leader of leaders category, um, but the leader of leaders job is to make sure that these team leads are working well. Leaders of leaders are really hands-on in making sure that these teams are functioning right under them, the team leaders are functioning properly, and the job is getting done. So this is a very hands-on uh, ministry uh, layer. Uh, the de departmental leader, though, has to do more than just that. The departmental leader has to think big picture. Are we headed in the right direction in this department? Are we growing? Are we hitting the things that we should be hitting? Are they looking at lots of different um, measurements to see are we uh, moving in the right direction and are we managing our resources well and are we optimizing the ministry that we have. The departmental leader though must be thinking about all the things that these people are not thinking about. These people are thinking about getting a certain task done. This person is thinking much bigger picture. They're thinking about all the things that need to happen to really move that ministry forward. Uh, the problem is when this guy starts acting like this guy, then they're, they're so ingrained in the details that they're not thinking higher, higher level. And so they actually, they have this position, but they're really acting this way. Now, let me just say, let me say this. Uh, when, a, when a ministry is just getting started, uh, you're having to do everything, right? I mean, you're doing the whole ball of wax, you know? So you're leading all the teams. Let's, let's say you're a student ministry of a, a church plant, right? You're just, you're, you're doing all the volunteers. You're, you're washing every bottle. You're making sure everything gets done. You're, you're handing out everything that needs to be handed out. And then you maybe recruit a team. So you're overseeing the team that does all those things. Now you've got multiple teams that you're overseeing. So now you move up to a leader of leaders where you're multiplying, overseeing multiple teams. Uh, but but to, as the ministry grows, you have to start thinking bigger picture than that. And what I find is that a lot of departmental leaders really function at this level and don't really want to think at a higher level. And uh, I think the reason is because they like to be the guy that everybody goes to. They like to be the hands-on person and they like to do that, but they inadvertently can keep the ministry smaller because no one's thinking at a higher level. And so there's probably a lot more that can be said about that, but I, I see that often. Uh, uh, in uh, departmental leaders. Number three, uh, not being a team player. You know, these departmental leaders, um, they can easily get siloed into they only think that their ministry is the only ministry on the planet, right? Or their only ministry in the church. Well, I'm the student pastor, and, and of course the student ministry is the only ministry that really matters here. 
you know, or I'm the worship pastor, and of course, worship ministry is you know, the only thing that really matters. The only thing we're going to do in heaven is worship, and so my ministry is the number one ministry. Or, you know, my kids, pastor, well, if we don't have kids ministry, then the church is going to shrivel and die. So the point is that they're so passionate about their department that they don't really play well with others. Uh, when it comes to realizing that, oh, we're actually a group of a lot of departments that have to work together and um, they become very uh, siloed off and sometimes competitive. A more subtle version of this is when they just, uh, a lack of consideration for the decisions that they make, how those decisions affect everybody else, right? Well, I, I think we should move to this hour, and I think we should do this. And they don't give any concern to the fact of, well, what would that do to your kids here? What will that do to the worship ministry? What will that do? They don't really care about that. They just care about what's best for them. And so uh, that's, a, that's a deadly sin. They have to realize that, hey, I not only lead a team, that is the student ministry, but I'm also on a team, and that is all these departmental leaders that have to work together and cooperate together and this often is a cause of a lot of conflict. Uh, number four, the failure to build and manage a strong team. It's up to these departmental leaders to recruit people underneath them, to develop the people underneath them, and to um, grow their ministry. And if they are unable to recruit leaders and develop leaders underneath them, then their ministry is going to suffer. Most. Most departmental leaders struggle in leadership development under them for two reasons. One is insecurity, and the second is a lack of discernment. Uh, insecurity in that, hey, I'm a departmental leader, and I don't want to really recruit any good leaders underneath me because they may be so good that they would show me up, right? So i got to be sure I get people that are worse than me under me so that I'm always seen as the best person. Uh, bad, bad idea, right? Uh, a secure leader would go, I want the best leaders I could possibly have. That's just more gas in the tank, right? That's more stallions, you know, pulling the, in the same direction. So they're going to go after those strong leaders, but insecure departmental leaders don't do that. They're intimidated by them. Or they may just like discernment, like, oh, he's great and he's good, or she's great, she's good, but they don't really have discernment to go, is this person really, should this person really be in a leadership position? Maybe they need to be developed a little bit more before you raise them up in leadership positions. And so, uh, but it is important, it is imperative that a departmental leader uh, identify and raise up and build a strong ministry team. Uh, insecurity, what was the second one? Yeah, and insecurity and lack of discernment. Um, and I, I've seen guys that just kind of lack discernment. They go, oh, this guy's going to be good. And then when you, you do some investigation, this person has had multiple conflicts everywhere they've been. And, you know, <laughs> they go, oh, he'll be great. Well, no, probably not, you know. Uh, we, have to need, we have to have some discernment of who you're bringing onto your team and how you're developing them. Uh, number five is mismanaging resources. This is another big issue for departmental leaders. Departmental leaders have to be thinking about uh, how do they manage limited resources. So, of course, limited resources would refer to money, right? Because you have a budget uh, and you have to manage that budget well. You have to understand what's the best use of your money. You don't want to blow all of it on the taco blast at the first of the year, you don't have anything left, right? You got, that guy's got to be thinking about that. 
but, but you also have to think about the limited resources of volunteers and the limited resources of your time and how you budget your time and what do you do with your time and how you go after emerging volunteers and how you deploy them into your ministry. And what I find is that many times if a departmental leader uh, isn't thinking through these things, then they, they mismanage these limited resources. Uh, oftentimes other departmental leaders gobble them up, right? Well, if you're not going to use that volunteer, I'll take them on my team, or you're not going to use that bill, I'll take it over there, and and uh, then that becomes a competition. You probably wouldn't experience any of that in your areas, but um, this is our life. So uh, managing or the mismanagement of these resources is often a big, big sin uh, of a departmental leader. Um, we recently had one of our departmental leaders, I'm not ripping the scab off for Glenn because he's probably having the jitters right now thinking about the teams that he has to oversee. He, he, all he has is departmental leaders that he's working with. And uh, one of them talked about mismanaging the resources, uh, totally blew it on uh, uh, one area financially. And we're like, okay, so uh, uh, you're going to need to come to our finance meeting and explain to them why you blew this like you did. There's a little pucker factor, you know, when you have to do that. Amen? That's called accountability. That surge of adrenaline through your heart is called accountability. But as a departmental leader, you can't do that. Right? Uh, but that, that's part of that role. Uh, let me get moving on, okay? Number six, lack of initiative. Um, lack of initiative. I can remember when I was uh, a young leader in my 20s, and I was a departmental leader. I had a senior leader over me, and he said, Craig, I get, let me give you a little uh, advice. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, what's your advice? And he said, whenever it's on Sunday morning, you need to walk fast wherever you walk. Just just walk fast. Just If, if you're going to get, get something, just walk fast. And then walk fast over here. And walk fast over there. And people look at you and go, look how fast he's walking. Look how hard he's working. Let's give that man a raise. Right? Look how hard it is. But he said if you walk slow, then people think, look, they're not even walking very fast. They're not walking, working very hard. Why are we paying them that much? And so I just, it just cracked me up uh, that he said that. But, you know, what he's getting at, what he meant was, you know, a department leader has to show initiative, right? They have to they have, to have a, a drive about them and a pace about them and an initiative about them that is moving the ministry forward. Um, and, and ministries that don't um, that don't have driven departmental leaders or ministries that typically they don't shut down. They just amber along. You know, they just they just kind of roll along. They're not really growing that much. They're not really losing a whole lot of ground. But people just uh, the ministry kind of uh, uh, just kind of uh, flatlines in a sense of not a sense of, of momentum and direction. And so I think this departmental leader has got to be someone who, who has initiative, who has vision, who is driving uh, that ministry forward. Uh, all right, and number seven, the last uh, deadly sin of a departmental leader is uh, confusion on calling. Confusion on calling. When a person gets to this level, uh, they need to be very clear on the calling that they have uh, in ministry. I, I think that you can clearly have volunteers all the way up to even leaders of leaders. You can have volunteers there. But I think when you get to a departmental 
leader, you really are looking for someone that, that has a sense of call to ministry vocationally. Now, in one sense, we're all called to ministry, right? We're all ministers. We've been given gifts, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're called to minister. Uh, but there is a sense, I believe, of a calling uh, to serve on a church staff, a vocational calling to ministry. Second um, Peter 1.10 says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election because if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, of course, while Peter's talking there about your call to follow Jesus, I think that there is uh, a call to, to pastoral ministry. And, uh, and I think that they're, they're, this person needs to be dialed in on their call. Uh, a call originates from God. You know, has God called you to serve at this capacity, in this level of leadership? Is this a call of God? Think about Moses. You know, God spoke to him through a burning bush. Paul, it was through a bright light on the road to Damascus. Uh, I, Samuel, it was a, a still voice, right? Uh, but I think that there has to be some sense and articulation of a call uh, to ministry. That John Newton, the author of the, the song Amazing Grace, once said, quote, None but he who made the world can make a minister of the gospel, end quote. And so he's just saying that our calling really comes uh, from God. Uh, I re recently, we had a young guy on our staff team, and he's skyrocketing in uh, up the leadership pipeline. And man, he, he can sing, he can lead, he can preach, he's good looking, he's charismatic, he's fun, he's, he's friendly. Everybody likes him. They're like, oh man, we, if we could clone him, you know. And he worked. He worked with us for uh, less than a year, and then he he quit to take a secular job. I was like, well, what's going on here? Why why are you quitting to take a secular job? And then as we really pressed in, he said, you know, I don't think that I've really ever felt called to ministry. He said, I just had a lot of talent, and I love Jesus. And everybody said I should be on church staff. But when he began to dial into it, never could articulate a call to ministry. I think this is really important, especially at this departmental leader level. So what are you looking for? Well, let me give you a couple of things. One, first, is there a strong, unabated desire to serve the Lord through vocational ministry? Is there a desire? First uh, Timothy 3.1 says, you know, if anyone desires to be an overseer, that's a good thing. So it, you, there needs to be a desire to serve God. Uh, in in a, in a pastoral role. Number two, is there a gifting of the Spirit of God? You know, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 talks about a God set apart, uh, pastors, evangelists, uh, teachers, you know, for the work of ministry. So do they have a gifting in this area that's been affirmed by the church? That really kind of leads me to the third thing. Is there confirmation of that call by people who know them well within the church? You know, are there people that would say, you know, I, I see, I sense that call in your life. I see that gifting in your life. We know you've been walking with you. We've seen your development spiritually, and we affirm that. You know, when I when I felt called to ministry, it was in a small church in Lubbock, Texas, and uh, there were people that I was in fellowship with that that affirmed that, said, we agree, we see the Spirit of God uh, at work in your life, and we affirm that call to ministry. Uh, number four, is there an inner call of Jesus to serve him in that way? John 21, Jesus said, 
Um, Peter, you know, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Is there inner sense that, that Christ has called me to do this? And then lastly, is there a conviction that to not follow this call would be sin? Right? Is there a sense that if I don't serve the Lord in this way, then I would be disobedient? I think that these divisional leaders need to, or departmental leaders, they need to have a clarity of their call. And that's, that's really important. If you're leading these people, you need to be sure that those things are clear in their mind and in their heart. All right, so these seven uh, deadly sins are, uh, again, just practical things that you expect uh, a departmental leader to avoid and maybe some of the areas that are a source of conflict. So how did Jesus develop these departmental leaders? Um, and so what we're looking at is here's the departmental leader level and we're looking at how Jesus developed these leaders. And we're going to focus in on this last little nine months where he is really raising up and training his leaders that are going to eventually lead the movement forward. This is one of the last stages of Jesus' leadership development. Okay, so how have we, how have we done this? Well, earlier on, Jesus uh, makes sure that they uh, have a heart, a shepherding heart. We saw that last time. This time he deals a lot with skills. Um, I don't have any idea what they're doing over there. Uh, and, and, and now uh, he's going to talk about uh, something different, how they think, how they think. And, and what I'm going to share with you, uh, I think, are things that if you're, if you're leading departmental leaders, like if you're a pastor and you're investing in departmental leaders, these are things you want to press in on that Jesus pressed in on. By the way, there are lots of things. I like came up with like 12 or 14 things that Jesus invested in his guys at this level. Uh, and at some point, you know, it just it becomes a little overwhelming. So I'm just going to give you four, all right, that I think are all super important, right? So here's the first one, motive, motive. What is your motive for ministry? Jesus took his men, his 12, up to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is way in the north part of uh, Israel. It, it looks like Costa Rica up there. It's, it's very, lots of, Lots of foliage, lots of running water. And the source, the north, northern source of the Jordan River comes down from upper Mount Hermon. And that's where Caesarea Philippi is. And it's there that Jesus asks him the question, who do people say that I am? And, of course, Peter knocks it out of the park. You know, Peter puts his foot in his mouth a lot, but sometimes he gets a good one. And he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And after that, Jesus begins to make some very difficult statements. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23 The invitation to follow Jesus would require self-sacrifice and denial and even suffering. He continued, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses his life from me will save it. What good is it if someone were to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. From this point forward, Jesus fixates his mind and his thoughts on the cross. He is fixated on going to Jerusalem. He is going to move down. He's going to move into a period in Perea. And he's going to come marching his way, as it were, one step at a time toward Jericho and then up 
that climb to Jerusalem to give his very life. Jesus is fixated on the cross, on giving himself away. And he repeatedly calls people to sacrifice. In fact, this section, after you look at Luke 9 forward, some of the more difficult challenges of Jesus. You, if you love your mother and sister more than me, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't give everything, you cannot be my disciple. These hard sayings of Jesus are all in this phase. In this phase where he's developing these leaders, he's giving them the hardest statements of sacrifice and self-denial. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you're familiar with him, who gave his life uh, in World War II. He said this, quote, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end of an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man to die, a man calls a man, he bids him to come and die. What powerful words, right? From a man who lived that out. This call to follow Jesus requires dying to our own self, dying to our own uh, desires, our own wants, the control of our own life. It means yielding ourselves completely to Christ, and this dying to self is not a one-time act. It is a, a, a daily occurrence, you know, a moment-by-moment -moment occurrence of saying, Jesus, I surrender to you. Now, why am I saying this about departmental leaders? Because departmental leaders are going to face hard times. There's going to be pushback and resistance, false accusations, betrayal. People will let them down. Discouragement can cover them like a dark cloud. And it's in those times when we say, why am I in this anyway? That you have to remember why you got into this in the first place. And the motive of your ministry will be tested. Are you here for yourself? Are you here because Christ has called you to be here? And to follow Jesus means there will be seasons of hardship and suffering and difficulty. It was never for gain or for prominence. It was never for self-gratification. It was always about Jesus, and it still is. And departmental leaders need to be reminded of that. But this is about Jesus and, and calling, uh, following his call. And that often requires sacrifice. And, and, and suffering. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. 
There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community for disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org collective and sign up for your free membership today. Another thing that Jesus uh, laid out in this phase, and it's kind of somewhat related, is this idea of servant leadership. Uh, when you think of great leaders, great CEOs, or great um, uh, military leaders, you always think of people on the top of the pyramid, right? Uh, but Jesus, of course, flipped that pyramid over. And Jesus constantly, in this phase, had to remind them what real leadership looks like. Constantly. And it, by the way, this was not a one-time event. This was multiple times. Even to the upper room, Jesus is still dealing with this issue. In Mark 9, it says they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he, he, uh, he asked them, uh, what are you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. <laughs> and sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said to them, anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. Jesus constantly reminded them that greatness is defined by service. Greatness is defined by service. Jesus said the greatest is to be the last and the servant of all. Again, he said a disciple also rose among them uh, to which of them uh, was considered the greatest. Our dispute rose up among them which was the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles ordered over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be the youngest and the one who rules to be one who serves for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trial and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's Luke 22, verse 24 and 30. True greatness is serving others. True, great, true greatness is not found in your recognition or your position or your title. Are you with me? It is, it is humbling yourself to serve others. And departmental leaders need to be constantly reminded that true greatness is not their spot on the org chart or where their office is or if they have an office. It's not measured by what meetings they get to attend to or not attend. It's not measured by how often they are recognized. True greatness is serving others. Kim Blanchard wrote this. He said, as you consider the heart issues of leadership, a primary question you have to ask yourself is, am I a, a servant leader or a self-serving leader? Wow. A self-serving leader 
uh, feels entitled to certain positions and promotions. A self-serving leader is quickly offended when not invited or, or asked about a decision. A self-serving leader needs to be recognized and publicly rewarded. A self-serving leader is quickly leaves when things get difficult. But a servant leader is quite another thing. A servant leader has a sense of this position in ministry is an obligation. It is a trust. And I do it to serve others and not myself. And I trust the Lord to take care of my needs. This kind of leader cares more about others than themselves. And so can you see now why Jesus focused on this at this level of leadership? So your motive, your servant, leadership. Let me give you, let me give you just two more. I think we're, we're okay on time here. Yeah, just two more. And then we're going to have discussion, okay? Um, forgiveness. Jesus taught about forgiveness at this level quite a bit. You know, a leader must be able to endure hardship and to forgive those who hurt them. And why is this important? Because unforgiveness will derail your ministry probably faster than anything else, right? It, a bitter heart, a unforgiving spirit. Unforgiveness is a cancer that grows with every passing moment. Uh, unforgiveness is toxic waste that corrupts everything it touches. Unforgiveness is an unwelcome guest that takes over every space in your heart and in your mind. And it's interesting that uh, and altogether appropriate that this tutorial of forgiveness that Jesus is about to give his disciples comes on the on the heels of conflict. He's talking about how to have conflict in Matthew 18. And here's a process that you got to go through in resolving conflict. And good thing is we don't deal with any conflict as departmental leaders, right? All the conflicts are resolved. Actually, the truth is all the conflicts that bubble up down here land right here. Right? All the junk, all the stuff that couldn't get resolved lands right here. So the departmental leader deals with more conflict than probably anybody else. Because everybody below him is just passing the buck up, right? And so the department of Luke finds himself dealing with a lot of conflict, and usually by the time they get it, it's pretty heavily charged. And with conflict comes an opportunity for hurt and, and the need for forgiveness. And so Jesus is coaching them, this is how you deal with conflict, Matthew 18. And then at the end of that, uh, Peter goes, so how, how how many times are we going to have to do this, Jesus? You know, I mean, we gotta, we got to take another, and we got to go to this person, and then we tell it to church. we got to go through, how many times are we going to do this? Seven times? And of course, Jesus responds, 70 times seven, right? Matthew 18, verse 22. Uh, he's basically saying, Peter, forgiveness is limitless. Forgiveness holds no boundaries and then he goes into the story about this servant that was going to be thrown in jail and the king had mercy on him and then he goes off and starts choking out somebody that owes him some money and at the end of that story Jesus says this this is how your heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart pretty solemn warning in light of all that Christ has done for us in taking our sin away, paying our sin debt, how can we live with unforgiveness in our heart to our brother and sister? And I think this is important for departmental leaders because we deal with conflict so much that we can easily be hurt by church members and hurt by other staff members. And there's probably not a person in this room 
that has not experienced some level of hurt. Me included. And when you lead at this level, many times you have a target on your back. Not just for people, but the enemy as well. To take you out. To make you discouraged. Make you embitter. Make you want to quit. So that everything grinds to a stop. And these wounds can only be washed clean through forgiveness. That's the only way it can can happen. And, and honestly, as you as you continue in ministry, you have to practice forgiveness over and over and over and over. And so forgiveness is not just a one-time event, a particular one-time moment in time. It is something that you practice on a daily basis to release these things to the Lord and to ask Him to heal your heart so that you can move forward. And, and I think it's very insightful that Jesus not only talks about sacrifice and not only talks about their motive and what real service looks like, but also talks considerably about forgiveness at this level. Um, and then let me just give you one more. There are others, like I said, but I'm just for the, our sake of time, let me give you one more. Uh, and that is multiplying the movement. Jesus really focuses the men at this level on multiplying uh, the movement. He's been training them and training them. And in Luke 10, verse 1 and 2, it says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where they would go. And he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So Jesus has already trained the twelve. He sent them out. It's very interesting. In Luke chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus is training the 12, and he goes out with them on a preaching tour. In Luke chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus sends out the 12 on their own, and they come back and report. And then chapter 10, the 72 go out. Now, we do not, so I'm, I'm going to share my little bias here. There, there's no direct verse that says, now the 12 ended up taking the 72 out and they multiplied. All right, I, I give you that. I think that is what happened because the 72 just didn't appear out of nowhere, right? The 12 certainly knew who this other next layer of leaders were. They most certainly had relationship with these people. And so, uh, in fact, you get to uh, Acts chapter 1, they got to pick a new re report uh, for, for Judas, and they probably dipped into Matthias, probably one of those 72. We don't know that for sure, but that's probably a good chance where he came from. And so I think that those 12 did take out the 72, and that's where you get this multiplication of Jesus to the 12, to the 72, and then to those that they would win to Christ, four generations of multiplying movement is already begun. But Jesus focuses on this uh, challenge of multiplication. And this is what brought him great joy in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. That's one of the only places where we have Jesus filled with joy. But he hears back about the, how the movement has gone now to the fourth generation. In Luke 10, this is what he says. Then he turned to his disciples. Now this may be his 12. I think it's his 12. This is how I, I interpret it. Uh, I'm open for correction, right? But I think he's talking to his 12 now. And he turned his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. 
and to hear what you hear, but then not hear. In other words, he's saying, guys, you have no idea what a big deal this is. Guys, they're prophets. Elijah would have loved to have seen this in his day. Jeremiah would have loved to have seen this. Isaiah would have loved to have seen this. But you get to have a front row seat to the movement that God is using to sweep around the world. I can, I can just see Jesus saying that. And, and he just wanted to instill this heart in his leaders for multiplication and the importance of multiplication and where the joy is in multiplication. And that multiplication is not optional. Multiplication is not just if you really get good, maybe you can get there. No, multiplication is the end goal. It is the, it is the end game. It's not something to be celebrated uh, every once in a while. It's something we celebrate all the time and we're constantly moving toward and multiplying leaders is the only way to fuel the movement. And uh, departmental leaders need to remember that multiplication is, is what Jesus has called us to. Multiplying the movement, multiplying your leaders, multiplying the church, multiplying your influence. This is the end game. This is a scorecard when it comes to uh, Jesus' view of ministry. And why? I've said this before. I'll say it again. Without multiplication, there is no movement. If, if every church stopped multiplying, the gospel would stop advancing. So Jesus constantly says the movement matters, multiplication matters, and he constantly drives that to his disciples. So departmental leaders, uh, there's a lot on them at this level. They, they really set the course and set the culture of the church. Uh, most of you are probably departmental leaders uh, or senior leaders in this room. And so, man, we need disciple-making leaders at this level, right? We, we must have them. And it's interesting that while, while we need to train them in skill areas of, to avoid the seven deadly sins, Jesus always drove back to the heart, to the motive to how you lead. It's not about you and calling them to the joy of multiplication and the practice of ongoing forgiveness, which I think is what often derails departmental leaders and causes them to quit. And so Jesus addresses these issues uh, head on. So if you're leading leaders like this, this is what you need to talk about. These are the things you want to build into them and discuss with them and pour over them and pray over them. Uh, to allow them to still uh, be passionate disciple makers. Okay, so uh, we're going to call up Glenn. This is your favorite part of every session when Glenn gets to come up. And uh, Glenn, so uh, you've heard these four things about how Jesus developed departmental. Uh, that's all your your world is dealing with departmental leaders, right? Did you get the shivers when I read those seven deadly sins? Did you have flashbacks? Of the mismanaged one, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm just dealing with that. <laughs> You're just dealing with that. Um, so talk to, talk to us about what are the conversations like that you have with your leaders about this idea of motive and about servant leadership? Yeah. So um, if you come to my office, we have a bit, I have a big round table in my office because I like conversation. Uh, and so again, it's when we talk about a, something that was successful, uh, maybe they ran an event or a program. Uh, first question I always ask is, how did that make you feel? Well, man, I just, I'm like, because I want to, I want to, I'm, I'm 
trying to cultivate this idea of what's the motive behind why you did what's what's the success what's the because we we targeted what a success was but what did it what did it do internally so i'm always i, I believe that good questions always get to where i need uh where i want to drive something towards so uh that would be my biggest issue in when i'm dealing with my department leaders is when i'm bringing them in i'm constantly asking questions i'm constantly saying hey let's talk about this uh, i i utilize um if you guys are familiar with ken blanchard's situational leadership uh, i utilize the four phases and i'm just trying to figure out so i i'm like with my leaders uh, I know exactly where they are on the grid of the four quadrants, and I either need to be giving them directive, I either need to be giving them support and, and direction, or I need to be giving them just support, or I'm just letting them fly. If I'm letting them fly, which I have a few guys on my team I let fly because they've proven themselves as leaders, uh, it's just a lot of coaching questions, it's just a lot of questions, getting a lot of feedback, uh, but if I'm in the other three quadrants, lots of questions, lots of time, I give probably in any given week, I'm giving probably um, to my department leaders, I'm giving at least 50% of my time to my department leaders. Uh, I do a tactical meeting uh, once a week with them. I do one-on-ones. We do a Monday morning. They're in my office Monday morning. Uh, and we do a, I want to know, what are your top three priorities for the week? Uh, I, and then they, we kind of do a stand-up meeting. They let me know what they're doing. I might redirect them on those priorities because it's, hey, you know, you might want to think about this or you might be want to point towards this. Uh, so for me, it's just spending a lot of time. Uh, and then I'm in their offices occasionally, you know, bouncing in, how you doing, what's going on, what's happening. Um, so I guess that's where I spend a lot of my time. Uh, is just, um, uh, and, and then I'm also listening a lot too. Uh, I'm listening for things and what I'm hearing and are they addressing and do I need to help them address certain things uh, or because if, if, I'm, if I'm hearing something over and over, like right recently I had a staff member on our team uh, that's had a lot of conflict. So I've had to, I've had to do some retraining on conflict resolution right because you want to keep getting better at it just pull them aside and said hey let's spend a half a day together and let's talk about conflict resolution and oftentimes what i'll do with my department leaders if they're struggling with conflict resolution is i'll ask them to call that person let's all three meet together and let me help you walk that out so you can watch me do that with you so that you're learning how to do it uh, and get better and better and better and you feel more confident in it because a lot of times your department leaders are just not confident in certain things. They just need some confidence. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what you've just said I think is really important. That you meet with them on a regular basis. That you're coaching them. You're asking lots of questions. You're listening a lot. And then you're giving redirectives as they need to. So you're listening for if they're developing a bad attitude, they're developing an entitlement, or they're developing that kind of thing, then you're going to be redirecting them on that as to the motive or their servant leadership or that kind of thing. Um, what, how do you deal with um, this issue of forgiveness? Because a lot of leaders are hurt. They're, sometimes they come to you because they have church hurt from past experiences. Sometimes they're hurt from people within in the church or on their staff team. 
how do you how do you deal with that? So again, just with hurt and and forgiveness, um, we just spend a lot of time talking about uh, why forgiveness is important. I always like to take them back to the scripture and right back to Jesus's. And I love to point out how Jesus, if anybody could have felt a lack of unforgiveness, Jesus was right in the sweet spot for it because he was constantly being attacked as a leader, constantly being misunderstood, constantly being misrepresented. And I go back to that and I say, let's just look at Jesus. How did Jesus respond in that situation? What would you do? How, how you know, let's talk about how there might be some similarities. Why is there a deep sense of hurt and pain? Uh, and what can we do to help you walk that out? Um, and, 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 and so, again, in my coaching style, it's just lots of, it, I go back to the questions. and just asking a lot of questions, having them come to some answers. What would you think do you need to do? And how can we address that uh, specifically? And I will say this. If you have a staff member that's dealing with a lot of conflict, I always go back to conflict starts at a heart, oftentimes. Um, because if you're not in right relationship with God, you have a really hard time being in right relationship with others. So it always generally comes back to that issue. If I've got a, a staff member that's having lots of conflict, I got to go back to the heart and say, is there something missing at the heart level, at the, char at the character level? Is there something we need to address? Not like, hey, you're getting fired, but there's something not right let's start there and figure out what's going on at the heart because it's often a not right with god piece which often comes out and then we got to address that and work that out good thank you uh well i think we got time for maybe two questions yeah um, senior pastor of a small church with about 135 members about 75 to 85 on average sunday as i look at that Structure, you're talking about staff members and all this stuff. You know, I see myself as the organizational leader, I see my elders as the department leaders, my staff as the leader of leaders, and volunteers as team leaders. I mean, would that be an appropriate application possibly coming out of that? I mean, because my staff is I have three part-time department heads and then I have an administrative assistant. Right. Um, right. But we have to contextualize that to the different sizes of organizations. That's true. Yeah. And I think this is a scalable thing. Uh, the, the issue on departmental leaders is just who's running the kids area? Who's running the student area? You know, those would be your departmental leaders. It would be staff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then I would say you would have staff here then probably. Your elders may be kind of up here that you're reporting to on what's going on, but you would have staff. And then, then oftentimes, and we didn't get to this, and of course, if we had a lot more time, we could talk about it. This, this little guy right here, this leader of leaders, it often gets squashed in a church. And I think it's a reason why it stifles church growth. Uh, we need to raise up more leaders and leaders, but, but oftentimes our volunteers. We just need empower volunteers with more authority. What training so, do you do if there's different levels of actually content training? Right. So what we've provided in the in the book that we're printing off, uh, we're publishing this <coughs> year, will have source content training for each level. Uh, and then if that's helpful, then we may backfill that with actually just a little Bible study for each one. So you can take your all your team leads through this little uh, Bible study together or these five or six things. Yeah, yeah. Now those may even be companion. We may expand that later, depending on how that goes. Yeah. Kind of a two-part question. 
to develop what you're talking about here of disciples and leadership, it's going to take uh, some time, several years. Um, and uh, how long have you guys seen before our churches? How long are you seeing before a church says, we're making some progress here, but yeah. you guys said you're practitioners, so you continue working with it, right? Never right. arrived at the I got it all figured out. Right. But the second part of that is many pastoral roles are changing every three to five years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're right. longevity and you're right. So so I it, practically how this works out, let's say in our church, is that I I want to lay down the pathway. I want to be sure that I move everybody down the pathway, and, and as much as I can move staff down the pathway then I'm producing disciple-making leaders because no matter where you are in the in your leadership structure, you're moving them down the pathway. You're bending it to this optimal trajectory. Does that make sense? And so I would start right here. Most churches don't have a clear disciple-making pathway. They don't know what the steps are to identify what growth is, and, and their staff aren't leading out necessarily in that. They're just running kind of back to the map or the menu, right? We said, you know, we got a lot of menu, we're doing a lot of activity, but are we moving people somewhere? So that's where I would start. Then uh, then I would come back and deal with, okay, now let's talk about pipeline a little bit. Now that we got this rolling and our people are moving down there, they're multiplying. Now let's talk about our, our structures and how do we help every leader get better and better in their disciple-making <clears throat> pathway. How do they and, and grow I spiritually? I think maybe you might be asking too, typically what's the time frame? Yeah. So in churches that we're working with in our own context and experiences, we were transitioning. Uh, so again, every place is different, right? But typically it takes between three to five years to begin to see real traction and real movement and real progress uh, depending on where you're at and what what things you are doing along the way to get there. So as pastors, if we're going to be suddenly like you pastors, we're going to make a long-term commitment to yes. an area in the church. We, say, we say to every church that's getting that says that we're working with, we say if you're going to do this, you've got to be thinking about that you're going to have some longevity because it's not even worth it if you're not committed to seeing it all the way through to the end. You know, um, I've been, I was at my first church for 11 years, and the second one is this one I'm at now for 14. So um, you, can't, you can't bounce around a lot uh, and expect to bring substantial change, right? Because they're trying to figure out if they like you in the first year, right? They don't even know if they like you preaching or not, right? All right, yeah, one more question, then we'll close it out. Is that three to five years with the initial pipeline in addition to the growth, is that the whole picture, or is that just on your uh, growth pathway? It's both. Yeah, it's really both. Um, but again, that's just a thumbnail. It depends on the size of the church. It depends on how uh, how much you've already got in place. You know, some people already have certain things in place. So I think it just it just every church is like an individual. They're all unique. And so our role is just to help you guys think that through. And what are the next steps for you? Okay? And so, uh, Glenn, you might just share with them a little bit more about that, and then we'll close it out. Yeah, so if you'd like a, a free uh, chapter from this new book that we're publishing called Made to Multiply, which talks about all of this and at, a, at a much deeper dive level, you can text the uh, word M 
M and we'll add to that number and we'll be happy to send you a free chapter to that and it'll also give you updates as uh, the book is getting ready to be published. Also want you to know that we have a lot of resources and a lot of what we did in our journey to moving things forward is in a book we produced called Bold Moves uh, that you can find out at our resource table uh, that will help you kind of think through some of the seven bold moves that we made uh, as we were working along this process to, to do what you see up here today. Uh, we'll be sticking around, hanging out, uh, willing to, you can, we'll stay as long as we need. You can ask any questions you have. Other than that, thank you for being here. Uh, if you'd like this PowerPoint presentation, you can also go out to the table and uh, you can give our guy out there, our team member Keith, your information and we'll get the PowerPoint sent to you as well. All right, have a great day and thanks, uh, thanks so much for being here. Awesome stuff from Glenn and Craig. I really enjoyed the past four episodes. I hope that you have. I'm sure that you have. Coming up next, we've got the track sessions from Exponential at last year's National Disciple Making Forum. Hey, if you haven't gone over to the discipleship.org slash collective and signed up for your free account, you are missing out. There's an awesome online community there where we have online seminars and webinars, and it's just a really great resource for you to connect with other disciple makers around the world. So make sure you do that. All right. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.